And um, let me introduce myself once more. This is our second class, and so there may be a few people that are new today. In fact, uh, I think there are. My name's Mike, and we are doing a class here every Sunday morning in a meeting that we've called Explore. And the class that we're working through right now is a class on apologetics. And uh, we're calling this class Defending Your Faith Without Starting an Argument. I hope that it will prove practical to you. I hope that it will challenge your thinking on a few things. And uh, I think we'll have fun together over the next six weeks or so. Can everyone see me okay if I don't get up here on the stage? Is this acceptable to everyone? Because I sure do prefer it. This is a lot more comfortable for me. So I'm going to do that. And if you can't see me, just yell at me and I'll get your attention. Um, before I pray, I want to just uh, mention a couple of things. This class is going to perhaps raise as many questions as it might answer. I hope not. I hope we're going to do a good job of answering a lot of questions. In fact, last week I asked for some input on the questions that you think people ask about Christianity. And uh, I'm not going to take the time to read them, but I've got a page and a half of questions from everybody, many of which were asked multiple times. And they are very good. Uh, obviously, the best one being, why is it that good food is always bad for you? That's the hardest question on the list. And I don't know how well we'll try to answer that one. But I've got 23 different questions that you submitted. And again, as I say, many of them were asked by multiple people. So uh, 23 questions are not going to get answered in this class over six weeks. But in case you'd like to dig further, there are so many. If you go to the Christian bookstore... There are so many good books on questions that people ask about Christianity. For instance, if people challenge you about the Bible and they say, Aha, I have found a contradiction in the Bible. One of the best resources I've ever found is this huge book uh, called When Critics Ask. And every uh, alleged inconsistency, error, and contradiction that is in the Bible is in this book. And the authors treat each one of them very carefully. So if, if you ever have a friend or a relative who thinks the Bible is mistaken about some things, or if there are inconsistencies in the Bible, check this book out called When Critics Ask. And there's another one I've got here, too. Uh, these are not for sale, by the way. I'm just telling you, go to the bookstore. This one is called Unshakable Foundations. And it's also a great book. It's edited by uh, Norman Geisler. He's a pretty familiar name in a lot of circles. Unshakable Foundations, its subtitle is Contemporary Answers to Crucial Questions about the Christian Faith. And uh, I read through here and I was very satisfied with most, not all, but most of the answers that he gives to different questions that people are asking. So I'm just telling you that if you leave here today a little frustrated, or any day, if you leave a little frustrated, know that there are lots and lots of great resources out there. There are answers to the questions that our critics ask about the faith. There really, really are. Okay, enough of that. We're going to begin. I've got an, uh, an outline. Hopefully you received one. Um, if you want to ever go back and see previous lessons, they're all on the website, www.upc-orlando.com. They're all on the website along with a recording of the lectures. Paul Fundenberg, our webmeister, takes care of that for us, and so we deeply, deeply appreciate that. So as you look at your outline, we're going to uh, pause for prayer, and then I'm going to do a little review, and then we'll dive right into today's subject. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have of worshiping you in a church in a free country. Lord, even as we sit here today, there are brothers and sisters throughout the world who are doing what we're doing, but they fear arrest, imprisonment, uh, possibly even torture and death. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in those places. We pray for them in China and Romania and various parts of Africa and, and North Korea. Lord, we pray for them that you will protect them, that you will favor them and favor those who oppress them with the gospel of Christ. Lord, let the kingdom of God today enlarge and expand. Bless the preaching of your word here in our church. Bless the teaching that's being done down the hallways in our Sunday school rooms. Bless, Father, we pray, every church in America that 
is trying today to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we look today at the Bible, Lord, we pray that you will help us to leave here today with a deeper reverence for your word and a greater love for people around us who do not know that there's hope in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and start. And as I said, feel free to get up and go get some more coffee or whatnot. I want to do a quick review. And as we go through this, I'm just going to fly pretty fast because if you were here, you don't need to be bored with the repetition. So let's do a quick review for the sake of those who were not. First of all, this is a class on apologetics. And we need to be sure we know what it is. What is apologetics? The definition we gave last week is that apologetics means explaining our faith to other people. It is knowing what we believe and why we believe it and defending it when questioned or challenged by people around us. And this uh, verse from 1 Peter chapter 3 is going to be kind of our anchor verse from Scripture where the Apostle Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared. So our class is to hopefully prepare you to give that answer. And notice that he goes on to say, you need to do it in such a way as to not give offense to people. So you do it, you do the apologetics with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak against you may be ashamed of their slander. May we live in such a way as to cause those who criticize the faith and even criticize us to still not be able to point the finger at us and say, look at the way you live. You're such a contradiction in terms. See, we don't want to live that way. So that's what we're doing. That's where we're going with this. And the plan for this class is twofold. The first part of this class, we're going to try to learn some answers to questions that people are going to be asking us if we work with them, if we live near them, if we are related to them. How many of you have relatives that are not Christians and are constantly kind of harping on why do you believe what you believe? Yeah, there are people like, sure, lots of us. And so some of them are the very people we love the most in the world. We're going to try to learn some answers, but we're also going to seek to understand the questioner. It's very important that as we do apologetics, we learn to ask good questions. And we try to listen uh, critically but courteously as they speak to us. And we're going to do a good deal of work on that even this morning. The other thing that we did last week was I quickly went through eight principles that I wanted to impart. Eight things that are going to guide us in this class. And you might want to write these down or write the main ideas. Here's the first five. Number one, truth exists. Truth exists and it is knowable. That's the first principle that we talked about last week. There is such a thing as truth. Also, number two, a truth is always true. It is true even if somebody doesn't believe it's true, it's still true. Even if someone doesn't know it's true, it's still true. And even if God hasn't chosen to reveal whether something is true or not, it is still true. So always know that in every condition, a truth is always true. Number three, faith and reason are compatible. We Christians have a reasonable faith. I hope you are aware that we're not stupid. The greatest minds down through time have been Christians. Uh, The greatest minds today believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. We just don't read about that in the morning newspaper, do we? (laughs) But faith and reason go together. They're not contradictory. Number four, everybody has a worldview. Everybody out there has a worldview. And what is a worldview? Could somebody give us a definition from last week? That's a great definition. Thank you. That's, that's excellent. It, yeah, it's a set of assumptions about yourself, about God, about the world, about life in general that you operate with. And everything you look at, everything you experience is filtered through that set of assumptions or presuppositions. And the key question, let me just elaborate, the key question as we do apologetics is, speaking to a friend, how well does your worldview, your presuppositions, explain reality and help you to live? How well does it hold up to analysis? How well does your worldview answer the questions, the key questions of life that everybody asks? See, that's 
I really want you to grab number four because as you go around and do apologetics, and that's what we're doing as we live from Monday through Saturday, we're doing apologetics. We have to know that we're talking to people who have a set of assumptions about the world. And so we need to be asking them, how well does your set of assumptions explain life? How well does it answer questions? How well does it enable you to live? Okay, so that's number, uh, that's number four. Number five assumption, or principle rather, is the goal of what we're doing. The goal of this class, the goal of apologetics, is not to win a debate. It's to win a disciple. All right, let's look at six, seven, and eight. Number six is you cannot change people's hearts, and that means that you should just relax. Relax. Breathe a sigh of relief because it's not your job to change the heart or the mind. It's God's. Ultimately, it's God, the Holy Spirit's job. And He can change their mind and heart just like He changed your mind and heart. I mean, if, if God changed Mike Osborne, He can change anybody. Seriously. Uh, the next one, number seven, the context of apologetics. We talked about this briefly. Is relationship. See, there's no one way to do apologetics with every single human being. You've got to do it one-on-one -on -one and in the context of a relationship with that person. And as they witness you being in community with other Christians, then apologetics is going to have power. But look, if we're not related to people with friendship and in love, and if we're not connected to a, vi a vibrant Christian community then when people hear the answers to our questions coming out of our lips and they see that it doesn't add up with how we live with others, then it's not going to be effective. So relationship is the context for apologetics. And finally, speaking of uh, breathing a sigh of relief, it's okay to say to someone, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Because sometimes it's mystery and no one here on this earth can explain it. Other times you might want to say, well, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will go find out, and I'll come back to you. Could we have another appointment to talk about that? Some of you have probably had to do that before. I don't know, but I'll go find out, and let's talk again. All right, so it's okay to say I don't know. All right, now that's all review. Let's go on to the next stuff, and this is new, new material now. I want to talk with you today about uh, a specific way to do apologetics. This is Roman numeral two on your outline. How do Christians do apologetics? Many of you have seen the movie The Matrix. Well, we're going to take a moment to watch about a three to four minute movie clip. And I want you to look at this movie clip from the perspective of doing apologetics. All right. So if we could have the lights, watch this clip and then we'll talk about it. All right, that's great. Those are awesome uh, observations. And I showed that clip because I think that there are uh, really good applications for us as we Christians try to do apologetics. So let's dive into uh, two different ways, historically, that Christians have done apologetics. And both of them are valid. There are situations in which you might, might want to do one and not the other. And there are other situations in which perhaps both approaches will work. But I'm going to show you the first one and postpone a fuller discussion of it until next week. And we're going to deal with the second one today. So the first approach is called the evidence approach. The evidence approach. In other words, you're coming to a friend who is skeptical about the faith, skeptical about the Bible, whatever the question might happen to be, and um, you're going to show him or her some evidences for why you believe the way you believe. It's inductive reasoning. I don't know if you know the difference between the two, inductive and deductive. This is inductive reasoning. You're beginning with the apologetic, and you're building a system of belief off of that. You're beginning with, for instance, a proof of God. That is one of the most famous evidences for the Christian faith that have been developed over the years, a proof for God. Uh, intelligence, de intelligent design is an example of arguing from evidences. Like if we look around us in the universe and we see that only a creator or only an intelligent being could have put all this together, and then you're going to use that as a way to speak to a friend about Christianity, you're doing the evidence approach. 
because you're beginning with the apologetic and you're developing a system of belief off of that. For instance, you're going to talk with people about the resurrection of Christ. You're going to talk with them about the biblical manuscripts and how they've been preserved over, the time, over time. You're going to talk about fulfilled prophecy and the miracles of the Bible and so on. All of those things are used as evidence for Christianity. Now, there are a lot of great people that take the evidence approach. For instance, have you read these popular books that have come out recently called The Case for Christ, The, the Case for uh, Faith? Lee Strobel is his name. And I believe, if I know his story at all, he came to faith as a result of looking at these evidences. So he's living proof that the evidence approach is totally valid, and, and it's often the right thing to do. And there are other famous names associated with this, such as R.C. Sproul. A lot of you know R.C. He wrote a book on the evidence approach to apologetics. Basically, what you're saying in this approach is that we have to understand in order to believe. Do you see the point there? Understand all of the evidences. Understand the truthfulness of the Bible and so on. And then off of that, someone can believe. That's why it's inductive reasoning. Okay, then, now let's go ahead and talk about the second form of apologetics, and that's the presupposition approach. The presupposition approach is different. It's almost opposite of the first one. And it's deductive in its style. That is, that when we do it presuppositionally, we present the system of beliefs first, and you develop an apologetic from that. The facts are deducted in the light of the revelation of the truth. And what we're doing here in presupposition is we're trying to force a, a person as best we can. We're, we're trying to push a person to see the foolishness or the irrationality of their presuppositions. What we're saying to somebody using this approach is, what you're holding to is false. It doesn't line up with reality. So if we could summarize this type of approach, we're saying to believe in order to understand. See, I'm going to tell you the truth, and I ask you to believe it, and the more you've, you, you put your faith in it, you will understand the bigger system. So you start off with uh, the system of beliefs, and you develop the apologetic from that. Now let me expand upon this, because it might be a little bit abstract for you right now. It's called presuppositional because we have certain presuppositions about ourselves, and about God, and about other people. And so do they. This is, I think, the apologetic that Morpheus used. He used the presuppositional approach to Neo. How do you know that he did that? What did he say that indicated that he knew something already that Neo believed? Did you pick up on that? Yeah, and you feel it. He said to Neo, something is wrong with this world, Neo, and you feel it. See, he knew that Neo had a presupposition, and so did Morpheus. And so his approach was to try to connect with Neo's presupposition. Now, this is biblical. Just like the other approach is biblical, this one is too. You might feel a little bit like it's a slippery bar of soap right now, but let me show you how come it's biblical. For instance, if you go back in the Bible, Genesis 1.27 says that God created every human being in his own what? Image. That means that every person that you see, every person you work with, your neighbor next door, that unbelieving relative of yours, everyone you know is the image of God. Now that's important information because that image has been stamped upon that person and it has had an effect. What effect does that have? When, so, when someone is the image of God, what does that mean about that person, about a, the way he thinks, the way he feels? He's going to think as a religious being. He's going to have religious thoughts automatically. And he's going to have desires for something much, much bigger than himself. And you, you need to remember that about every person because they don't act that way, do they? They don't act that way when they're sitting there watching Desperate Housewives or, like I do, American Idol. 
you might think, man, you are wasting your time. Well, what is American Idol but a religious way of thinking about life? It really is. We're projecting the image of God outward, trying to find a star. We're so celebrity conscious that that's part of the image of God. I love this verse, too. You might want to jot this one down. It's Ecclesiastes 3.11. Do you know what it says? It says that God has set eternity in our hearts. Now, that's a presupposition we need to start off with, that every person has eternity in his heart or in her heart. And again, what does that mean? That means that they're always going to act out of a need and a desire for the transcendent. Because they know this life ain't all there is. They do know that. They sense it down deep. And then another powerful passage of Scripture is in Romans chapter 1. In fact, if you have a Bible, we ought to look at this. Because for the presuppositionalist, this is uh, vital, vital information. Romans chapter 1 contains some things that are really radical when we approach the subject of apologetics. Romans 1, beginning verse 18. Uh, it says here in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, now here is a key phrase, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now what truth are people suppressing? What is Paul referring to here? The obvious truth about God, that's right. Because it goes on to say, they suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Sometimes I think about these, and we have a, a, at least one doctor in here that I know of. When I think about these physicians, surgeons, especially, who operate on the human body. My wife is a nurse, and she'll come home and tell me about all of the different things that she saw that day. Most of them make turn my stomach, but she loves it. She loves it. And she was, she's often told me about these physicians who act as if God is the last thing on their minds. And yet every day, moment by moment, they're dealing with the most amazing miracle you can have, which is the human body itself. And, and you think of people who study the, the heavens and who are still evolutionists, and yet they're looking into the very handiwork of God. We think that, well, they're just atheists. Well, the fact of the matter is they know God. They do know about Him. Because it says there that what may be known about God is clearly seen. And then in verse 21 of Romans 1, Paul comes right out and says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, the Bible is teaching here that every human being knows down deep that there is a God. They may not know his name. They certainly may not know about his son Jesus, but they know enough to see that there is a God who brought this thing into being and to whom we are morally accountable. They know that. Now, if, if you disagree with that, you disagree with Paul, and you disagree with God. See, God is saying that every human being has enough of the image of God, enough residual knowledge of God, that they are accountable to God. And as we talk to them, we need to carry around in our minds that presupposition. As we're talking to John Doe at work, we, be, we need to be thinking, now John knows that there's a God. He just doesn't want to admit it. And, and, and he doesn't want to feel it. He doesn't want to think about that. But it's true, and that's a presupposition that we must have. Uh, John Calvin, uh, one of our heroes, said, everyone is God-conscious. Every one of us is God-conscious. Again, that's one of our presuppositions. So, let me wrap this little part up and say that in the, uh, in the presuppositional approach that we're going to try to use today, we're essentially helping people believe what they already know to be true. Say it again. We're essentially just helping people believe, embrace 
feel, think about what they already know to be true. So do you see now how that's different from the evidence approach? With the evidence approach, you, you are approaching folks whom you're thinking don't know anything, and you're trying to just give them a bunch of facts. And you're hoping that after they see enough facts, after they understand, they will believe. But the presuppositional approach is the opposite. We are assuming that they already know the facts, at least to some degree. And so we're asking them to believe in order to understand. All right, is that making sense to everybody? Mary? Okay, what was that? And Jesus often did that. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. You know, he, he put the burden back on them. Ken? This explains what, for, uh, by the way, one of the questions that we often have about Christianity is why would God send someone to hell who doesn't know about Jesus? Now, that is a deep, deep question, and we're going to probably have to reserve a, a whole Sunday for that. But a lot of people struggle with God's judgment because they don't get this point. We know enough to be accountable to God. We do. You know, if, if, I, if I were not a believer in Christ and I stood before God and, and, and I was facing His judgment, if I went to hell, I'd have nobody to blame but myself. And that's true for any human being. There's enough knowledge of God in the image of God that we still have and in the evidence of His uh, being in, in the created world that we see that even the pagan in Africa, that's the classic one, even the pagan in Africa should have known to bow his knee and repent of sin and trust in a redeemer or a savior, whether he knew the name Jesus or not. So we'll talk about that some other time, but I just want to make sure everybody understands this presupposition that says that human beings do indeed know God. Now, I got to put my cards out on the table, okay, at this point, and tell you that I have a bias toward the presupposition approach. I do. And here's why. Not only because... What? It didn't show? No, I have no passion, I'm sure. Um, but you know one reason why I like the presupposition approach is this, that I find that the... And, and let's go ahead and call it the traditional way of doing apologetics, which was the evidence approach. That has now become traditional. The traditional approach or the evidence approach for doing apologetics means that I have to study every other belief system out there. I have to memorize what other people believe. You know, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, pantheists, polytheists. I have to know all of their belief systems and memorize enough of their facts to be able to refute them point by point. And, and you know what? I can't do that. Uh, it creates such anxiety in me about that that I just prefer to approach somebody in more of the way Morpheus approached Neo, which is asking questions. And as you ask questions of somebody, you allow them to see their worldview. And you see your, their worldview, and you're able to talk on that level instead of dealing with the facts. Because I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of conversations where I try to present the evidences one by one, point by point, I refute this and refute that, and still at the end of it all, they say, well, I just don't believe that, you know, and that's your opinion, and I'm going to hold on to mine, because argument and logic and so on do not necessarily add up to helping people discover the truth, whereas I think the presuppositional approach does. However, remember what I said earlier, both approaches are valid, totally valid, and there is no one way to do this thing that we're talking about. So you have to know your, your person. You have to have a relationship. And more, you know what? More than likely, you're going to be doing both approaches all at once. It's a very fluid thing. It's a very dynamic thing. And as you have a conversation, you might be asking a question, and then they ask you a question, and you've got to be ready to, with an evidence. You know? So it's very dynamic, and I don't mean to create a wall of, of separation between these two. But for the sake of teaching this class... I do have a bias toward presuppositionalism, and another reason I do is that I think Jesus did that most often. For instance, how did Jesus do apologetics? He asked a lot of questions. Uh, let's take a moment to look at a couple of these exchanges. For instance, in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, I'm just going to go real fast with this. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking to some people, and in 
in verse 23, uh, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts. I'm in Matthew 21, 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, here come some opponents, the chief priests and the elders of the people. And they came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? And I just love Jesus' frustrating way of doing apologetics. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. <laughs> I just think that's great. You know, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to frustrate their approach entirely by once again doing what Morpheus did. You know, what do you think? Tell me about your faith. Tell me about your belief system. And then I'll tell you a little bit more about mine. And there are a couple other instances. I'll just let you jot these down. Matthew 22 there are two different exchanges that Jesus has with his opponents. And in both of those, he simply turns it right around on them and asks them questions. So I think I see Jesus modeling this approach a little bit more than, uh, than the evidence approach. Although um, both are valid, and I do deeply respect R.C. Sproul uh, and a lot of these other guys that do the evidence approach. All right, let's move on. I'm now in your outline on uh, Roman numeral 3 on the back. Uh, sorry, Roman numeral 4. I would like today to ask you to use for today the presupposition approach to the question that we're going to try to answer today. And then next week, this, this question is so important that we're going to spend two weeks on it. You remember the question? I gave you a preview of it last week. Today's question is, why do you Christians believe the Bible to be true? That was the question several of you actually turned in last week, and I feel like it's the most important one to start with because the Bible, after all, is our source of authority. And so as you're talking with somebody about your faith, and maybe you're talking with a skeptic or a doubter or a seeker or an agnostic or an atheist or whatever, and pretty soon, if you're talking about Christianity, the subject of the Bible is going to come up, right? And so, how do you defend your belief in the Bible as God's Word? Today, we're going to do it presuppositionally, and next week, we're going to do it evidentially. So, we'll make everybody happy. And I do believe that both approaches have a lot of good and important things to say about this question. So, someone comes to you and says, how can you know the Bible is true and not man-made? Why is it that you believe the Bible is true and applicable to all areas of life? Well, what are you going to say? Is it sufficient to say back to that person, well, just because? Or, I believe it because the church has always told me that. Probably that's not a good answer. Or, here is the one that we always fall back on, and I just don't think it's good enough. I just take it on faith. See, what does that answer imply? That faith is over here and reason is way over there. I just take it on faith. I, I can't explain it to you. It's probably inexplicable. I just take it on faith. Now, there are some things that we must ultimately say, like the Trinity, a mystery. After we've said it all that we can, after we've explained it to the best of our ability, we still have to say, I just believe it. I believe it and I take it on faith. But at this early stage of your conversation, don't just leap to that answer. I just take it on faith. Um, so let's try it from the presuppositional angle. And I'm going to try to break this down into several steps. Um, letter A, I believe you need to, first of all, identify the unbeliever's starting point. Identify the unbeliever's presuppositions. Now, this is all going on in your mind, okay, as you're talking with somebody. And I'd like to actually give you an inviolable principle about your friend's presuppositions. It doesn't matter what he says. doesn't matter what she acts like. doesn't matter anything about them. They're going to believe two things. Number one, one of their presuppositions is human beings are autonomous. That's their presupposition. That's where she's coming from. I'm autonomous. I'm independent. I don't owe God 
my life. I don't owe him an explanation. I'm my own person. You see this all the time in, in TV ads, don't you? Can anybody think instantly of an example of a TV ad that indicates that human beings think they're autonomous? There's the Burger King one, have it your way. I mean, we think that's all about hamburgers. It's not. It's about a presupposition about life, that you can have it your way. See, it's totally false, but that's what most human beings are walking around thinking. I'm autonomous. I can have it my way. Can anybody think of another example? Nike, just do it. Absolutely, yeah. What's that implying? You can do it. You can do anything. Yeah, you don't depend on anybody, certainly not on God. Just do it. Um, you deserve a break today. Yeah. And then there's uh, Outback Steakhouse. What's their slogan? No rules, just right. That indicates that they, you know, they're wanting you to think there are no rules, there are no real rights and wrongs. It's just what's right for you. And what's right for you is to come to our restaurant. <laughs> No rules, just right. All right, so you see human beings are autonomous, number one. And the other assumption that human beings are walking around with is everything happens by chance. Again, they're not going to tell you they believe that, but that really is one of the things they take for granted about life. Everything happens by chance. Can anybody think of an example of how you see this presupposition lived out every day, Keith? Stuff happens. Good example, Keith. And good paraphrase, yeah. That is a great example. Stuff happens. That's, that's right. Um, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, um, oh, I'm going to mess it up now. It, it was something like, uh, there is no dogma or whatever. There's, there's no dogma. There's no truth. There's no overriding purpose. Everything happens by chance. Now, if people lived logically by these two presuppositions, there'd be a whole lot more suicides than there are. Because if I believe that I'm, a, I'm independent, I need no one and no thing, and there's no real overriding purpose or meaning to life, then why not end it all right now? It won't affect anything. It won't affect anybody. I just perish. I'm annihilated. There's no afterlife. So why not? I mean, that proves that people do not live by these two presuppositions, typically. They know something better. But anyway, that's the unbeliever's starting point. Now, what's your starting point? As you're talking to him or to her, three, three things. This is the Christian starting point. Number one, there is an infinite triune God who created the universe and to whom everybody is accountable. That's the first thing that you and I believe in our worldview, that uh, you have an infinite triune God out there and we're all accountable to him. Secondly, to go a little bit further about this, this God is a sovereign God. Things don't just happen by chance. He oversees and manages every detail of the universe with wisdom and power for his own glory. And guys, if that were not true, again, whenever something bad happens to us, we might as well just give up. But we, we believe, we know, we, 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 that, that he's all in his hand. It's bigger than... Access I had. He's got a purpose. What it is, I all in control. Joyce with third, the third presupposition that this infinite divine God, not just is very loving. Loving, in fact, I could be in heaven. Now this is details. No, 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 no. Should infants be baptized? That's not part of our. Should, uh, you know, Presbyterian, Baptists, that's not our starting point. We might, 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 might just tell everything. We've got um, the unbeliever's starting point, your own starting point. How in the world are these two people, you and your friend, going to talk about something like the Bible with this question 
of why do you believe the Bible to be true? Well, let's break it down a little further and go on to the, thir- the, the next thing. Step one, now that you're actually in the conversation, step one is to have the right attitude. Have the right attitude. And let me just tell you what the right attitude is. First, you need to pray. Have you ever been in a conversation and you just send up a real quick arrow to God? I, I do that a lot. God, help me. Help me know what to say. A lot of times when someone calls on the phone and they're having a crisis, I'll think, Lord, give me words. Help me. So pray. Secondly, um, relax. And by all means, don't be defensive. Somebody asks you, why do you believe the Bible to be true? Okay. You pray, take a deep breath, and just relax and don't get defensive. You've got a great opportunity coming up here. Don't blow it by being defensive. Uh, next, be patient. This conversation may not be the last. It probably won't be. All you're doing is dropping seeds and you're praying that God, the Lord of the harvest, will let them grow. Next, be confident. Why can you be confident? Because you're a presuppositionalist. You know what he's really feeling down deep and you know the truth. So, be confident. Next, listen respectfully. And really listen. You know, put yourself in his or her shoes and try to gain that perspective before you start speaking. Second, or next, be his or her friend. Concentrate on, this is friendship evangelism here. This is friendship or, or conversational apologetics, let's call it. So you're trying to be a friend. So that means you need to also be ready to challenge if and when the right opportunity arises. So all of these things are what it means to have the right attitude. Okay, so are we good there? Yes, Lay. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Oh, okay. What was that? That's great. I hope you all heard that. Yeah, that's part of a right attitude, too, that uh, you're in a divine moment here. There's something bigger than you, someone bigger than you that's at work already, or else the person wouldn't have brought it up. Good point. Thank you. Um, let's go on to step two then. After you've got this right attitude, and you're, you're, you've got the perfect attitude now, <laughs> you're ready for step two, and that is ask questions and critically listen to the person's responses to see if they make sense. So this is an important step. This is what Morpheus did to Neo. He asked questions, and he listened critically and carefully to see if the answers made sense. Why, why do this? Because, because questions help you understand the person. They help you know what she or he is thinking. And most critically in this apologetic encounter, questions are the best things to use in order to break down the person's belief system and help him or her discover the weaknesses of his or her assumptions. Now that's a mouthful, but I'm going to come back to it if you don't remember it all. Questions are, are what can uh, help you to understand the person, know the person, build relationship, but also begin to hopefully, with God's blessing, break down the person's assumptions and help him or her see the weaknesses thereof. So this means that you've got to try, and, and this is hard for some of us, if you're going to sit there and ask questions, what have you got to be sure not to do? What? Argue. Yes, you don't argue. What was it? What was the other one? Attack. Good. Talk. Yeah. That's really kind of what I was looking for. That means you're not going to do all the talking. You're not there to teach. Not yet. Hopefully that will come later. But yeah, and, and also you don't want to give him the answers. Sometimes by our very questions themselves, we're giving away the answers. So all you're doing here is you're asking questions. There are two types of questions to, to try to ask. One type is open and the other is pointed. And uh, we should start with the open questions and gradually move to more pointed ones. Let me give you a list of some open questions, and you might want to jot these down. Open questions are things like this. What do you think? Or what do you believe? Totally open. See, you're not trying to make a point. You're not attacking. You're just ready to listen. What do you think? What do you believe? How did you come to that point of view? Uh, why did you say that? 
what do you mean? You're asking for further information. And a final example is, well, why does that bother you? All of those are open questions because you're just sitting back and, and making yourself totally vulnerable to whatever they may happen to say. How'd you come to that point of view? Why did you say that? What do you mean? And, and why does that bother you? Now, you could say them differently, and you would be perceived as attacking. Like, why did you say that? <laughs> now, that's not an open question. That's more of a critical thing. But why do you say that? Why do you believe that? How did you come by that information? That sort of stuff. And then pointed questions are things like these. Here are more pointed ones. After you've done the open first, a pointed question would be, how did you reach that conclusion? Uh, or how do you know that's true? See, that's, you're pushing them a little bit more now to the wall. How do you know that's true? Um, how well is that working for you? <laughs> I love that question. That's a great pointed question. How well is that working for you? Because, you know, they can't wiggle out from under that one very easily. And then here's another pointed question. What if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? I remember when somebody asked me that question when I was in college before I became a Christian. I gave this guy all this flowery, flowery philosophy of life, and I had it all figured out. And he gently but firmly asked me, Mike, what if you're wrong? And then he added, you know, people go to hell for thinking that way. <laughs> and that, that's beyond the pointed question there. That's kind of giving the answer away. Yeah, that's true. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I want to give you a little conversation here on the slides. We're going to imagine that you are person Y. Y stands for you. And you're talking to person X. So let's imagine a hypothetical conversation. Person X comes up to you and says, how can you possibly believe the Bible is true for today? You say, well, let's back up. What do you think about the Bible? Now, how many of you would have thought of a different thing to say at that point. I probably would. I, I think we instantly prefer to give the answers. And we want to defend our system of belief. But, but we're just going to say, no, let's back up a little bit. What do you think about the Bible? And, and this is the reply. Well, I think it's a collection of stories and myths and legends that people put together as they tried to make sense of the world. It's a good book, but, but no more than that. Now, have you ever heard that answer? That is a very common answer today. Sure, it's a good book, but, and it's a guide to life, but, you know, not much more than that. So let's see, what, is, what do you say in, in, in exchange? How did you come to that point of view? And the reply is, oh, different ways. Things I've heard teachers and philosophers say, and I just can't believe that a book from God would cause so much pain and suffering and trouble in the world. You say, well, why do you say that? And she replies, just look around. People have fought over the Bible for centuries. No, people, no two people seem to agree on what it means. You respond, I agree, the Bible is controversial. Now here's a pointed question. But those teachers and philosophers you refer to, do they always agree with each other? And she replies, well, no. So what makes you believe them and not the Bible? Well, I guess I just have trouble figuring out what the Bible's all about. Have you ever tried to read the Bible for yourself? Um, no. <laughs> now, that is a very idealistic conversation. Uh, I know that. I'll grant you that. But it's simply an illustration of how instead of getting on the defensive, by asking questions and by thinking a little bit more critically than we typically do as Christians, we might be successful at getting down to this final point. Um, no, I have not read the Bible for myself. Now, what do you think about that? Any comments or responses to this, pro or con? Would you have said anything differently? Would you have thrown in any other responses along the way that weren't on the screen? Lou? Good observation. Yeah, Lou is pointing out that perhaps halfway through there when she mentioned God, you could say, Oh, do you believe in it? What do you, what do you think about God? I mean, that would have maybe taken it off in another direction, but that's a possible opening. Sure. Fran? You run into someone who says what? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So what would you say if, if the person said, yeah, sure, I have read it? What would be a good follow-up? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, good. And that would have... So I'm, this is simply a, a, a kind of a glossy illustration of the, of the point I'm trying to make. Ask questions. That's what we're talking about right now, asking questions. What are you doing through these questions? Look at the next slide. Why ask questions? In order to lay bare the other person's belief system and expose his or her irrational assumptions so that he will question those assumptions for himself and ask you what you believe. That's, that's ultimately your aim. Bring his or her worldview a bit more into question. That's what the Matrix did. Uh, and, and finally, remember, Morpheus offered Neo the two pills, and he took the right one. He wanted to know more. Randy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's true. You're, you've earned the right to be heard at that point. Good point. Yes. Sure. Good for, good for God. Good for God. All right. So the three steps that we've tried to cover, the two that we've tried to cover so far, number one, have the right attitude. They all start with A. Have the right attitude. Secondly, ask questions. Now here's step three. The word is advantage. Take advantage of your leverage point. Take advantage of your leverage point. You, you know what? You've got leverage with these people. You do. That's part of our presuppositional approach. You have some leverage here. And, and I want to call this leverage a point of tension. I love this concept. So we've got about seven, eight more minutes. Hang, hang on with me. Let me finish this up. This is a point of tension that you can use as you're conversing with your friend. Let's call it a point of tension or his or her sense of deity. This person has a sense of deity. He possesses it by virtue of being created in God's image. We talked about that already. And this is what you and he or she have in common. You both share the image of God and this sense of deity. We already talked about this. All men know God. Everybody out there knows deep down that there is a God. Your friend has that sense. She's the image of God. She feels guilt over wrongdoing. Why would, why would somebody feel guilty if there weren't an absolute system of right and wrong? Guilt would not be around, but people do. They admit it. More people go to counseling now than ever. They're seeking relief for doing as you're talking and I'll that quotation for what he says this is every person is some the logical conclusion consistencies the pull system active in both places to say exists fine and will cost some we person and try to towards the logical conclusions logical conclusions gobbledygook but I hope that it to a to get, 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 get point with a little illustration. To illustrate a bit of this point of tension, use this in this man's name, J.P. He is a Christian philosopher. And he gave a big address at the University of Vermont about Christianity and about his faith. And then afterwards, he was invited to come into a dorm room and talk with some of the students there, some of the people who wanted to ask him questions. And here's what one of the students said to this Christian philosopher. He said, whatever is true for you is true for you. And whatever is true for me is true for me. If something works for you because you believe it, that's great. 
but no one should force his or her views on other people since everything is relative. J.P. Moreland knew that there was a point of tension inside that student. So in order to get to it, here's what he did. He stood up and walked over and unplugged that student's stereo, picked it up, and started to cart it out of the room. And when that student saw what was going on, he said, hey, wait a second, what are you doing? You can't do that. And you know what Moreland said in response. He said, you're not going to force on me the belief that it's wrong to steal your stereo, are you? See, what had he just done? He had just exposed the fact that even though this student had those two presuppositions of human autonomy and everything happens by chance, he was not willing to really live that way. Especially not when it impinged on his own stuff, his own stereo, his rights. And so Moreland was perceptive enough to know there's a point of tension inside that student. He may argue with this whole thing about Christianity, but if I can just get to his point of tension, then he'll see that his worldview doesn't hold up to the light of the day. And that's when he picked up the stereo and tried to walk out. Now, I'm not saying you should do that kind of stuff, but in every uh, conversation that you have with somebody, maybe, just maybe, you can be bold enough to raise a question that will get him or her to see, oh, wait a second, you know, you're right. That doesn't make sense, does it? Does that make sense, Liesl? You got a comment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. Huh, totally contrary to each other. That's right, human autonomy and chance. Very, very true. Mary, when you... That's right. You'll quickly discover the point of tension, won't you? Yeah, I don't... <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I give you my permission. That's right. <laughs> yeah, go to Burger King and order a Big Mac and say, I, I want it my way. That's very good. Well, we need to wrap up, but I hope that what we've said today helps you to understand a possible way to talk to somebody about the, your belief in the Bible. Now, notice today I didn't give you any evidences for believing that the Word of God is the Word of God. There are plenty of such evidences. There is remarkable evidence that you and I are not stupid fools for believing the Bible to be God's Word. Come back next week, and I will share those evidences with you. We'll talk about such things as why we believe that the, the manuscripts that we now have are faithful to the originals. Why do we believe that uh, Jesus understood the Old Testament to be the Word of God, etc.? So I'm going to give you a lot of information next week, and you'll be both a presuppositionalist and an evidentialist. How about that? That's pretty good, huh? Now, Cam, what's your dad's name? Jim. Let's bow for prayer, and I'll pray that uh, God would just continue to be at work in Cam's father. Lord, um, as we talk about this, I'm so aware that it's very easy to walk out of here as proud people, people who have the truth. Well, we do, but Lord, we know that we do only because you've been gracious. And But for your grace, there go we. Lord, nothing at all makes us a bit different or better or superior to anyone with whom we might converse about the faith. So, Lord, would you please work a deep-down humility in us and a gratitude in us that other people will see as real and genuine. And we're not proud bigots. We're not judge, judges. We're instead witnesses of the great truth that there is a God, and his name is, is God, and he loved us so much he sent Jesus to us. Father, um, we've heard today that uh, Jim is someone that you're pursuing. And so we lift him to you and pray that you will not let him rest 
until he finds his rest in you. The things that Cam has spoken to him, we pray that he will not dismiss as the words of, a, of an idealistic young son, but instead that he will really consider them hard, that he will look at his worldview, that he'll see that it doesn't work, and that he will embrace the good news of Christ. And Father, we just pray for Cam as he continues to have our opportunity to speak to his dad. Lord, many of us have gems in our lives. Some of them are within our own family like this. Others are neighbors and friends and co-workers and co-students. So, Father, would you give us, please, an overwhelming sense of devotion to Christ and duty to our fellow men that we might be willing to ask them questions like Jesus did and uh, be used by you as an instrument for you saving many, many people around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week.